Now a a reading from the Gospel according to St. John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm a habits guy. If I want to do something well, I start first by trying to establish a habit. Now, a habit is a, an act repeated over time. Good habits and bad habits aren't the product of a single decision. They're the product of a series of decisions to act in a certain way over and over and over again. Aristotle said, excellences we get by exercising them, as also happens in the case of the arts as well. For the things we have to learn before we can do, we learn by doing. For example, people become builders by building, and harp players by playing the harp. So too, we become just by doing just acts, self-controlled by doing acts of self-control, brave by doing brave acts. But why should I even be concerned about habits in the first place? I mean, what should I care about them for? Well, because habits are what's left when we forget how to act. When we're faced with what looks like an unsolvable dilemma. John Locke wrote, But pray remember, children are not to be taught by rules, which always will be slipping out of their memories. What you think necessary for them to do, settle in them by an indispensable practice as often as the occasion returns. And if it be possible, make occasions. This will beget habits in them, which, being once established, operate of themselves easily and naturally without the assistance of the memory. Now, in Zen Buddhism, one of the ways that it's possible to practice uh, practice mindfulness is through a set of disciplines. One one can become a painter or... um, a a, a gardener, uh, or an expert in the art of making and serving tea. 
Another discipline that Zen Buddhism uses as a template for achieving mindfulness is mastering the art of the sword. Now, you may think to yourself, what does sword fighting have to do with spiritual practice? Now, in mastering the art of the sword as a spiritual practice, one first has to learn all these sort of complex forms and movements. How do you learn them? Practice. Over and over again, you practice. And at the beginning, it feels like this practice is pointless. It's really disconnected from the goal. You know, I want to learn how to use a sword. What, what, what good is all this time spent on correct grip and achieving balance and all that stuff? I just want to be a good sword fighter. What Zen Buddhism says is that in order to achieve excellence with the sword, you first have to learn all of these forms and movements, which is to say, you got to learn all the rules. But you learn the rules by practicing them repeatedly. And the goal of Zen sword fighting is to practice so much and so well that you embody all these rules and forms. See, the way Zen Buddhism talks about it is that to be excellent, you need to learn everything so well that you get to the point where you forget the rules and the forms altogether. And then you can be fully present, fully mindful when you have the sword in your hand. You, you no longer need to think, you just act. And when we talk about habits, though, we, we don't usually rise to such lofty employment of language. We tend to talk about it in terms of something more mundane, right? Like muscle memory. You practice typing long enough and you don't have to stop and think, where's that stupid Y key anyways? I mean, you just, you just know, right? You, your body knows. I mean, that's why the military does drills over and over and over again. I mean, they want to make sure that when the bullets start flying, you, you don't have to stop and think about what you're supposed to do. You just do it. So habits then, when properly applied, are a good thing. Being a good piano player is a series of actions honed into habits of precision. So is being a good writer or a good potter or a good student. But it's also how one becomes a good person, through habit. Bravery is a habit, as is generosity, compassion, justice. We build the structures that support goodness by doing good things day after day after day after day. And these structures remain in place even when we goof up and make a decision that doesn't support our pursuit of excellence. Right? But... We also know that habits can be bad, too. We can reinforce faulty actions by doing them repeatedly. Actions that harm ourselves and others. Racism is a habit. So is homophobia. Lying and violence are also habits. So are xenophobia and misogyny. But see, most of the time, I don't think about the habits that I cultivate. I just do them. And part of that is on purpose. I mean, I put my keys, my laptop, my toothbrush in the same place every time because I don't have to stop and think about where they are when I need them. I mean, I can continue my day without having to think each step through from start to finish. And that's a good thing. 
but it can also be a bad thing. I mean, it's one thing to check out mentally while I'm brushing my teeth. It's an entirely different thing to check out mentally when it comes to something like the habits of exclusion. That is to say, keeping out the kinds of people I think ought to be kept out. I mean, I'm just as likely to cultivate bad habits that run on autopilot as good ones. I mean, think about how easy it becomes to dismiss somebody because of the color of their skin or because they speak with an accent or because they're the wrong sexual orientation or gender expression or because they live in the wrong part of town. Hate, fear, suspicion, rage, neglect, violence, apathy, selfishness, greed, these can all become habits that operate beneath the horizon of our awareness. But it's a learned behavior that gets ingrained over time. I mean, you remember the the song from South Pacific, Rogers and Hammerstein's musical, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. You remember that? You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you're six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. See, we learn things about the world and how we're supposed to live in it, and then at some point we internalize those lessons. And eventually, through practice, through re repetition, our actions and our attitudes become habituated. They become habits. And then... We don't have to remember who we're supposed to hate and fear. We don't need to think about who's disgusting or who it's okay to ignore. It's just a script that plays out without our ever even having to think about it. Now, when this kind of conditioning happens in individuals, we call it a bad habit, right? But when it happens socially, on a, on a societal, cultural level, when everybody learns the same lessons about who to be afraid of, and who it's okay to walk past without noticing, those cultural habits become systems and laws, policies and procedures, which then, when they become uh, the default way of understanding the world, serve to reinforce the same bad habits in individuals that gave rise to the structures and legislation in the first place. It's a vicious circle, right? World without end. Amen. I mean, that's how we create police officers who are convinced they're blameless for kneeling on a black man's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. That's how we create folks who refuse to wear a mask to protect other people. That's how we create legislators who think it's okay to traffic underage girls. That's how we create frightened little people who lash out and sometimes kill Asian Americans. But it's also how we come to have horrifically damaging policies like redlining and voter suppression. It's also how we have whole companies and organizations that seem to invite sexual harassment, homophobia, transphobia, that, 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 that are concerned more with the bottom line than the bottom dollar concerns of their employees and customers. I mean, it's how we institutionalize suspicion of and disdain for the poor and the houseless. 
It's how we learn to justify the construction and maintenance of walls and cages built specifically to protect us from people not born here. I mean, harmful habits and institutions that perpetuate and institutionalize them, I mean, they're everywhere, right? And we can get so used to them that we start to accept that that's just the way the world is. We've got to be honest about the fact that the church, for its part, has often been one of the worst offenders, providing theological cover for some of humanity's most wicked impulses. I mean, the walls we construct and the systems we live with in the name of our faith are often just as high and just as thick, just as damaging and intractable, just as exclusionary as the worst structures and laws that the rest of society lives with. I mean, think about how many people the church has turned away, cast aside, consigned to perdition. And it's easy to think, well, you know, I mean, it's not really us, right? I mean, we're not like that. Okay, fine. I mean, for the most part, I agree, but Think about how many people will never bother to walk through those doors because they're convinced that that's how all churches are. I mean, think about how many people will never gather with us around that table just because they think they already know everything they need to know about the church and how it treats people. Because why? They've lived it. They've seen it. They know. So the church, it has a lot to answer for, a great deal for which it must atone. Which is partly, I think, why the church has such an impoverished view of the Holy Spirit. Now think about it. In our text for today, the disciples are huddling in fear after the grisly crucifixion of their teacher and friend. They know that because Jesus was executed by the state as a political revolutionary, Their association with him means that the crosshairs of the Roman Empire are now squarely on their backs. Jesus is gone, and the man is breathing down their necks. So what do they do? Well, the disciples lock themselves in a room. They're just hoping to stay alive long enough to let the heat die down a little bit. I mean, they realize that the world they've always known is going to be different from them from now on. They're on all the most wanted posters around town, so they figure, you know, let's just just sit tight. No point going out there until everything blows over. I mean, somebody else, send somebody else down to the Circle K for some beer and Funyuns. Maybe if Domino's to see if they deliver in our neighborhood. But see, while they're waiting, Jesus shows up, like literally out of nowhere. Doors and the windows are locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus is just standing there. Now, this should be good news. Their teacher and friend was definitely a goner. He'd already been buried, but now he's here. And they should be celebrating, right? But ask yourself this, why did Jesus come to them in that locked room in the first place? Well, obviously, Jesus wanted the disciples to know that he's alive. That Caesar, despite the systems and laws meant to keep Jesus and his peasant followers in their place, 
that Caesar is helpless against the power of God. But Jesus didn't make an appearance behind locked doors just to celebrate. He came because he, of all people, knew the kind of pressure his disciples were under after Good Friday. I mean, he understood the impulse to lock themselves away, to assume that the systems and laws that had murdered Jesus were just the way the world worked, that they were just going to have to get used to it. Jesus knew that the only choice they felt like they had was to stay hidden, somehow just to stay safe. So what does Jesus do? He comes to them and he brings them peace, for one thing, which they could sure use right about then, right? He knows they're afraid. Peace be with you, he says. Well, that's good. That's a good thing. But but what does that peace look like? Well, according to John, when Jesus wants to impart peace, he sends the Holy Spirit. After he shows them the wounds in his hands and his feet, Jesus again says to the disciples, peace be with you. But this time he makes clear that the peace he's brought them isn't the kind of peace that will keep them walled off from the world because the second time that Jesus offers them peace, he adds, as God has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, the text says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, on this reading of things, the Holy Spirit isn't a personal self-help guru who brings only comfort and consolation in times of trial. And peace isn't just a calm mind in the face of upheaval. John lets us know that the Holy Spirit is the power by which the disciples will walk back out into the world. And peace is going to be found not in the safety of locked doors and thick walls, but in the midst of a world formed by the institutionalization of bad habits, hatred and fear. This pushiness, this impulse that thrusts the disciples from the safety of thick walls and locked doors out into an unsafe world is probably why the modern church doesn't know quite what to do with the Holy Spirit. Because whenever the Holy Spirit is let loose, everything we've built to keep the world the way it is gets blown up, knocked over, turned on its head. But maybe that's a good thing. All the way back in chapter 4 in John's Gospel, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And he strikes up a conversation with her, which of course he's not supposed to do, I mean, she's a woman and a Samaritan, which means she's the last person a good Jewish man is supposed to rub elbows with. The hatred of Samaritans and the devaluing of women were bad habits that Judaism had turned into systems and laws. There was a whole social infrastructure built on excluding people. Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's unclean, who's acceptable, and who's not supposed to be on the guest list at all. 
And Samaritans and women occupied their own unique, undesirable position in this social structure. So Jesus and the Samaritan woman, they get into a rather involved theological discussion. And again, Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules here, walking through the locked doors meant to keep everybody where they're supposed to be, turning the habits of exclusion upside down when he talks to her. But at the end of their conversation, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. For God seeks such as these to worship God. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. Now, Samuel Cruz writes of this encounter, the traditional theological and cultural beliefs of Orthodox Jewish teachings about Samaritans, and we can deduce the physical and geographical locations, institutions, theology, and doctrine. This encounter suggests that they will no longer have any hold on God. The ways of the past have been replaced by the Spirit, which is, which is not and cannot be controlled or limited by human systems. In fact, the Spirit enabled Jesus to theologize with a common woman and to experience a fruitful ecumenical moment as a result of that encounter. The Spirit moved Jesus and the Samaritan woman from patriarchal, ethnocentric, and theological restrictions, knocked down the walls. In other words, when structures and organizations, when, when systems and laws, when policies and procedures are put in place to make sure that the people in power stay in power, while simultaneously making sure that the people who are supposed to stay on the outside actually stay on the outside, it's then that the Holy Spirit shows up and starts making trouble every time. So when Jesus shows up after Easter, bestowing peace and breathing the breath of the Holy Spirit, talking about sending his followers out into the world, it's not just to calm the nerves of his terrified disciples. No! When you let the Holy Spirit loose, you start seeing all the protections the powerful build to protect themselves from everybody else start to crumble. And that's the mission that Jesus gives his disciples in that locked room. Get up! Go back out into the world and start making some good trouble. And with the power of the Holy Spirit spurring you on, make sure that society's bad habits, its Systems constructed to keep the powerful people powerful and to keep everybody else afraid and in their place. Make sure that gets turned upside down. Start living as if the new world that God is busy creating is already here. Because when the Holy Spirit gets set loose, It is. Thanks oh, again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.